You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. I speak with Tess Michaels. She's the founder and CEO of Stride Funding, a venture-backed student financing company that offers a more flexible alternative to traditional student loans via an income share agreement. She's a serial entrepreneur, successfully exited her previous company, and has worked in investment banking at Goldman Sachs and private equity at Vista Equity Partners. She attended both the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard Business School. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. We learn more about the higher ed market, how it's being financed, and what inspired Tess to create Stride. She's raised two rounds of equity financing from VC funds, as well as wrangled a number of other investors into their debt-like instruments, including impact investors. And we talk some about how she's juggled all of those, as well as getting advice from her uh, for aspiring founders and recommended reading. So I think you'll really enjoy this. Stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good. Tess, it's so great to have you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to dig in, learn a lot more about your story and about Stride Funding. I think the place that'd be great to start is how did you decide to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, my uh, first foray um, into building a business was actually back when I was at Penn in undergrad, I had built my first uh, startup, which was a software analytics company in the CSR space. And, you know, we had a small exit there, but it was really a passion project on something I cared about, which was companies really utilizing their resources to, you know, um, drive good in society and support causes they and their employees cared about. And use really robust analytics for that. Stride actually came from a fairly personal place as, um, you know, as you know, Miles, you know, I spent most of my career in finance and then actually founded Stride from a student first perspective. I was a graduate student um, thinking about my own financing options and looking at my peers and realizing many of us had the same thought, which is, look, once you add books and tuition and housing, it gets very expensive very quickly. And so um, there has to be a better way. And I realized there was a huge gap in the market where most of the players were just point solutions, right? You had financiers who were just, you know, focusing on the capital market side, you had servicers. So I really saw, you know, there was a pain point in the market. Most players were not offering end-to-end solutions, nor were student-centric, and realized, hey, if if it's not me, who's who's going to do it, right? And I think that's how many entrepreneurs um, tackle problems, um, is by seeing gaps and kind of going at them head first. And um, creating an amazing team to hopefully execute well um, on that vision, but it's been such a ride so far. So was it in each case the idea that drew you in or did you decide first that you wanted to start a company and yeah. then you picked the idea? Yeah, so um, my first venture was very much the idea first. I was doing research at Warden on kind of hybrid models, uh, you know, for-profit um, organizations that had a social uh, mission bend. Um, so that naturally came about. Um, Stride, you know, I knew coming into Harvard Business School that I wanted to move back into an operating seat. While I loved investing, I just missed uh, working on 
you know, uh, day to day on something I was crazy about. And so I knew I wanted to move back into an operating seat. I asked, you know, everyone from friends to Uber drivers about, you know, problems they saw in their life. And Stride really happened pretty organically after, um, you know, thinking about different ideas, I really saw a pain point pretty firsthand and said, okay, this is, this is something where there is clearly, you know, um, a lot of demand and the solutions aren't perfect. And I really think there are ways to improve them. And I also think that I, alongside hopefully a future team I will build, which now we have, um, can really, you know, execute well on. And so, yeah, it, it it's uh, really exciting to be working on something that you know I got to experience firsthand. But I don't think it always has to be that way. Um, so, yeah. Great. So tell us about Stride Funding. What is it that you do? Yeah, absolutely. So you know what we're really focused on is changing the narrative toward outcomes-driven financing products, especially in the student loan market. Um, and so essentially, we're an end-to-end provider of income share agreements. We've now actually expanded to offer other outcomes-driven um, products in our portfolio. Um, and so instead of a you know, traditional loan where students accrue you know, interest and there's you know, this um, structure around principal and interest, with an income share agreement, students just pay a fixed percentage of income, usually a single digit percentage over a set number of years, usually just five years, which is far shorter than traditional loans. And the whole idea is it really aligns the you know, cost and value of education and ensures everyone is focused on student success, right? If the student does well, everyone from the school to the provider to the investors do well. Um, and it has been you know, really fun seeing kind of the uptake in both the traditional university market and the bootcamp space. So when you say outcome-based, can you explain how that works? Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about the financing market, I think, you know, the old world was primarily your large banks who were then disrupted by your big fintech companies, you know, that came in and offered, um, you know, traditional lending products. And what we're really focused on is instead of thinking about just loan or debt only products, how can you um, essentially change payments to be you know, tied to earnings, right? And so that way, if a student is, you know, pretty cautious about how to pay for school and pretty thoughtful about different options, they say, okay, well, I know it's worth it to go get my, let's just say your master's in data science or my nursing degree, because my payments will be tied toward um, what my outcomes look like post-graduation. And that is a fundamentally different model than what we've historically seen in the lending market. So you're saying if someone earns a higher income, they pay more, but if they have a lower income, they're paying less. Yes, but there are student protections on both sides of the spectrum. So we have caps on the max amount students will pay. And we also have, um, you know, minimum income thresholds, which essentially say if a student is underemployed or unemployed, they don't pay during those periods and there's no penalty for them. Um, with that being said, you know, we are really focused on students with very predictable earning streams, and we have impact investors that um, are able to really drive very affordable rates for students. And so it's not a choice between affordability and flexibility. The goal is to really offer both. And this is allowing people to get the education they need to have the career that they dream of, which is really exciting and something that I personally am inspired by is that kind of opportunity. Providing people economic opportunity is part of what I find so inspiring about the story. Absolutely. I think economic mobility is 
very much something I'm a huge believer in. I mean, you know, both my parents were immigrants and education was the reason they really uh, were able to progress in, you know, their careers and, and their journey to America. And I think about so many of the student stories we hear about and it's so touching. Also the types of students we impact while, you know, the vast majority of students we fund are in healthcare or STEM degrees, you know, the actual population is majority women and majority minorities. Um, and that, you know, definitely gets me excited to wake up every morning and go to work and help more students like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I do think it's really inspiring. I have heard the question from some people who are newer to this or who are skeptical, who wonder if it, how do you value that insurance part of an ISA or an outcome-based product versus a loan? If you're, you know, if you're thinking, maybe I'll make less, you're really buying insurance that your career doesn't go well. Yeah, no. How do you value how much you're paying for that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a few pieces that are important. So first, again, this is meant to be a menu option, right? It's not the silver bullet. This is an option for students. But I would say, you know, the insurance piece is one element of an ISA that is attractive because at the end of the day, life isn't a straight line. And especially in an environment like 2020 during COVID, I think, you know, the the possibility of folks being furloughed or thinking about an uncertain job market has become something that I think almost everyone has felt, right? It's not just one population or students who are more, you know, cautious about what their career looks like. And so I think, first of all, in this job market environment, it's important to just have that protection because the truth is when you're very successful, it's great. And if you end up paying a little more, that's okay. But when you do have a you know tough time in life, whether that's professional or personal, it's nice to have that support. With that being said, the two things we think about are first, how do we make sure that we can really make our product priced um, very attractively? And as I mentioned, we bring you know uh, almost entirely large you know multi-billion-dollar nonprofits or impact investors to the table to fund these ISAs, and therefore the rates themselves are very attractive. So it's applicable to a larger body of students. Second of all, transparency is really important. So we have you know, comparison tools and calculators built in where students can compare their different options. What you end up seeing is, you know, even students who are very bullish on their careers realize as a product, this is very attractive for them, given the rate, the short duration, and then also the career support on the back end that we offer that is just part of the solution. Um, so it's, it's a great point, but I think that's how we think about it is insurance is one piece and then career support is to help them increase their upside, shift their income curves, and then transparency is underlying all of that um, to help them make that choice. Great. And can you tell us a little bit about the scale, either in terms of customers, employees, yeah. dollars? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so at this phase, we've, you know, uh, as a business, we've raised two rounds of venture funding or, um, you know, First round was led by GSV Ventures, which is a big ed tech fund, and Deborah Quazo sits on our board there. Um, it was co-led with uh, Slow Ventures, um, and we, you know, from a traction perspective, have funded students at over 65 universities across the U.S. Schools like NYU, Carnegie Mellon, UPenn, um, you know, lots of schools in Texas, California, etc. Uh, we've also launched now with um, multiple, you know, uh, very high quality, high impact boot camps, um, you know, that we really see uh, alignment on the outcomes of our ISA products. And so I think for us, we have always focused on having this dual pronged go to market 
where we want students to have the access via the direct-to-student offering, and then we want to be able to scale and have institutional partnerships um, in place as well. And it's been, you know, a really fun journey building this for sure. And how big is the team? So we're right around ten uh, full-time folks right now, and it's um, an amazing group of Swiss Army knives. Uh, my first full-time hire was a guy named Patrick Connor who has been in student lending for about 25 years, used to manage student lending at Wells Fargo and was early at SoFi. And uh, it's, you know, been so fun kind of now growing that team uh, pretty quickly. So. Exciting. Now, as a financial business, money not only funds your working capital, but in some senses your product. So you need to be raising debt and equity constantly. You've talked about VC funds and impact investors and I wonder if there's other types of investors that you're managing. How do you do all that? Yeah, absolutely. No, it is. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, fun to think we are, um, you know, constantly juggling, talking to partners and investors, and within investors, operating capital investors and ISA capital investors. Um, so I would say, you know, for us, um, you know, the operating capital is the VC capital is strictly for. Um, our growth as far as hiring and, and continuing to refine the product. Um, whereas we raise capital to fund students within kind of an SPV structure. So we have funds that are subsidiary to, um, you know, the parent company. And, you know, our first fund was just focused on traditional university students, Title IV university students, um, primarily, you know, backed by large uh, impact investors, as I mentioned. Our second fund is focused on the alternative education space. And, you know, we have large banks um, who are putting capital in there at very fair terms. Um, and as we scale, I think the way we think through it is, you know, A, we primarily focus on large in institutional investors that we know we can scale with versus having to keep going back out to the capital markets. And we typically bake upsize provisions into our contracts. So it's a lot easier to scale with these partners. Um, and with that being said, we also have players like boot camps that want to fund off of balance sheets so they get the upside of their students performing well, right? They delivered on high quality education and they want to actually participate in that. Um, so it is definitely uh, fun to keep a pulse on how the capital market system is working, um, but it definitely requires all hands on deck and it, it definitely means no one on the team is getting that much sleep, but we're all pretty excited about the work. So it's worth it. Does that mean that you have to spend more time fundraising than a software CEO, do you think? Yeah, so I would say that, um, you know, we've built a pretty robust um, solution end-to-end. -end. And so, you know, the platform itself scales pretty nicely. As far as where, you know, time is spent, I would I would probably agree. I would say on the VC front, definitely not. Our first, you know, uh, Venture round was preempted and happened, you know, very quickly. Our second also was a very quick process. I think a lot of people are big believers in the vision. On the ISA capital front, it definitely, especially earlier on, took quite a bit of time to really get trusted investors that we believed had very fair rates, especially given our focus on making sure students um, are really, you know, given kind of the, the most optimal terms. Um, so I would definitely say I spend more time raising ISA capital than, you know, a founder of a company that doesn't require any uh, funding beyond VC capital, um, for sure. Thank you for being a loyal listener. One thing I'd ask 
is please consider joining our Giving Circle. We support startup tech nonprofits with our donor dollars to act as the angels to seed new organizations seeking to scale and do good. So please go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. And you alluded to making sure that all of those investors are aligned with your mission. How do you think about that? How do you determine that? Yeah, the way we think through it is, you know, first you can, uh, the way, once you get term sheets, it's very quick. You can see how investors are structuring this and um, what are the general terms versus alternatives students have, um, right? So traditional university students clearly get access to federal funding versus, you know, your bootcamp students don't. And we, they also may have different risk profiles. So first is just seeing, are the terms fair? And at this point, we've gotten, you know, lots of signals from the market to really be able to compare pretty, um, you know, thoughtfully. Second is really about thinking through, okay, once you've compared, what is the broader vision? Like, why are these investors excited about this? And, you know, what gets me excited about it is when I meet investors that, um, you know, are focused on increasing access, which is very much how we were founded and what we care about. And once you have aligned investors from that perspective, it's about what's the growth of the business look like? And are they going to continue to support um, students as we evolve and as we offer new products? And I think we've been very fortunate to find um, ISA capital investors in that bucket. Um, With that being said, I mean, I think there's a huge range of types of investors, right? You have your big uh, nonprofits and foundations and family offices all the way to you know, banks, credit funds, and and very traditional types of investors. And um, I think as the market expands and becomes more mainstream, you will see capital infusion from all parties across that spectrum. I'd be curious for your thoughts on higher education in general. In particular, uh, let's start with the um, changes coming about from COVID. Has that impacted your students, your lending volume? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. Changes? I would say, um, you know, it was it, this year, we've definitely seen the education space evolve uh, quite a bit. Um, I think some of the, you know, main takeaways we had was first, you know, we definitely saw, especially early on in summer, just a lot of top of funnel growth of students proactively looking for alternatives to traditional loans, um, which was interesting. I would say that you know, conversion or like, you know, the hesitancy of students to sign something until they knew if they were going to take a gap year or go back to school or what that looked like um, was definitely, you know, something palpable that we experienced. Um, I would say for us, at least what we noticed is, you know, we continue to see pretty steady volume on kind of our direct to student channels, but where we saw big tailwinds in the market was a, around online education growth. And when I say online, I don't mean the Zoom classes that a lot of on-campus institutions have moved toward, but more your traditional degree programs, like your master's in data science that was you know, built online with a lot of these you know, partner technology companies. That is definitely a big growth area we've seen, and we've made partnerships with large providers to help um, support that. The second, of course, is we've seen a huge spike in enrollment with alternative education during COVID, whether it's because folks have been furloughed or, you know, um, unemployed and decided to go back to school and do these short-term courses or because people are taking gap years and taking that time to upskill. Either way, it is very fascinating to see the spikes there. And we as a team have allocated a lot of resources and time 
to reacting and offering support um, to those two segments of the market that we see growth in. Also, when you think about the higher education market and costs, do you think that outcome products will drive down the expense of higher education? Yeah, so that's a, it's a great question. Um, and it's something that gets me pretty excited. So first of all, I'd say as a company, we've really invested heavily in data science because I think that as there is more transparency around outcomes of different institutions, there's you know two impacts. One is what you said, which is around costs. The second is students being more thoughtful on where they decide to attend based on the outcomes of those different programs and those different institutions. And right now, even when you look at surveys, you know um, most of the reports that are focused on you know what are the top 50 universities, but not what are the top programs within those universities that have the strongest outcomes. And we've actually done a lot of work of creating what we call our stride scores um, to really help students distinguish um, and, you know, between different programs and where the you know, return on investment per dollar is higher. Um, and so that, that is something I think we're pretty excited about. And truthfully, you, know, it, you can use it as a proxy. If you actually go on our website and just play around with our uh, pricing calculators, you can see how I say rates differ based on different programs and different schools. And we actually had done an asset acquisition of another you know, company in the space, it was a data science company. We acquired you know, all of their ISA uh, pricing models, which really helped us within two seconds price students across very different programs. And I think that's a fun way to honestly compare, contrast and, and make much more educated decisions as a student um, deciding where to spend your, you know, your dollars and your time. Now, before Stride, you had worked in uh, environments that more traditional finance. When you hear the name Wharton, you also think very numbers focused, perhaps dollars focused. And I'm curious what your experience was with your interest in mission-driven companies. Did you have to not talk about that? Or is that seen as different? What was the reaction when you were in those environments? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. I think, you know, um, what's interesting is I think, first of all, you know, Warden had so many uh, kind of sub segments of the institution where you could really uh, find your own niche. And for me, um, you know, I was able to do a lot of research on, uh, as I mentioned, kind of these hybrid organizations or impact-driven um, companies. I uh, also was able to create a major. So I took a lot of classes like impact investing, a lot of classes on entrepreneurship. And then the university actually allowed me to create a concentration focused on global impact investing. And so I learned from really amazing professors and was able to really curate kind of the course content I was taking as almost a blend between finance and social impact. Um, and so, you know, you're able to forge your own path in a lot of ways, which has been really um, enjoyable for, for me and, and helped me almost strengthen those networks. With that being said, having learned pure play finance and worked in very traditional settings like investment banking and um, private equity also helped me understand capital markets and figure out how to structure um, you know, deals more effectively and how to drive better rates to students. So if anything, I think it's actually helped with my credibility when I need to raise capital to support these students. And honestly, it was a very worthwhile um, spend of time. But it, yeah, it's definitely a environment that is primarily focused on more traditional paths. And um, you, know, you have to be a little bold uh, to forge your own. 
Do you feel like sometimes you have to switch languages when you're speaking to your employees versus traditional investors? Oh, 100%. Um, I think as an entrepreneur, you wear a lot of hats. And in a way, you're a bridge between your, you know, your team members or your employees, your partners and your investors. Um, I, you know, it's funny when you look at, you know, my calendar, I think every hour is a very different hat that's being worn, right? One will be an ISA capital investor, one will be a university, one will be a boot camp, one will be a team meeting, um, you know, and then uh, you go on from there. And uh, it's part of what makes this really exciting and dynamic and, you know, probably why this is my you know, favorite job, if you'd call this a, a job that I've ever had, um, because it is so interesting and, um, and so different every day. With that being said, you know, yeah, I think it, it requires uh, me to be a lot more alert than you would be if, if you were kind of meeting with the same folks, the same types of um, people, um, you know, every, every day. Yeah. I also want to talk a little bit about innovation. The model itself is innovative for the U.S. How do you think about continuing to innovate? How important is innovation to your culture? Part of the reason I ask is because when we started and ran Higher One, working in the higher education environment and being set on the schedule of you know, academic years and they start only once a year, it felt sometimes like it was a long time before we'd get feedback on any changes we made. Absolutely. It's a great point. So the way we think through this is, you know, um, first of all, with the traditional Title IV university market with on-campus programs, you know, there's peak season and there's mini peak. And those are the two points in the year that volume really is driven. Um, but that is part of the reason, you know, we've really expanded to thinking through uh, both alternative education and online degree programs, because both of them are not seasonal, right? They're smooth throughout the year, which helps us really think through uh, how to innovate uh, you know, every day of the year versus just two seasons. Um, beyond that though, I think we think about innovation as, A, how do we really drive strong outcomes for our students? We've done a ton on the back end with career support, new tools that we've built in around kind of our, our analytic capabilities. And I think that's really helped um, us differentiate. And then beyond that, what are product innovations that we can do? Again, you know, we don't brand ourselves as a pure play income share agreement or ISA company. It's much more so about the broader vision around outcomes driven financing. And there's so many different types of products you can offer within that that have different shapes and, and sizes um, based on kind of the student and institutional partner needs. And so uh, it's, yeah, it's something that I think has been fun for us this year to expand to versus last year when we were pure play focused on just traditional university models. What have been the biggest challenges as you've been growing the business? Yeah, um, you know, I would say for us, it's been it's been interesting. So I'd say the biggest challenges are a really thinking through how to increase awareness and educate the market around income share agreements. You know, I think uh, a few years ago they did a study that showed you know less than five percent of students. Um, and 7% of parents knew what an ISA was. Whereas if you look nowadays, I mean, look at Google Trends, the amount of media around ISAs, that is naturally changing. And I think we really wanna be part of shaping that story and ensuring there are good actors um, at play. Uh, so I think that's really critical. Second is of course, keeping a pulse on the regulatory market and how that evolves. And clearly we just had um, the, you know, the election, but really thinking through how do we ensure that 
all of the players are almost self-regulating until ISAs are formally regulated? And how do we think through, um, you know, the evolving space of how credit is viewed? And then lastly, I think it's really about uh, as we grow the team, I'm, you know, I'm really uh, proud of just the people we've brought to the table and how um, completely all in every single member is. And I think that as a founder, you constantly think about how do I keep my culture really strong, my team uh, quality as high, and um, everyone is connected, especially in a world where everyone is so dispersed right now. And um, that is something I actively spend a lot of time on and how to keep the team itself uh, really, you know, inspired and motivated and, um, you know, really entrenched in, in what we're building, so. What advice would you give to an aspiring founder yeah. who's listening? Yeah, um, I think, you know, the things that I've really uh, taken is first, you know, don't be, a, don't be afraid of sharp learning curves. I think you should really pursue ways to, um, you know, build your know-how early. Second is you don't have to make mistakes firsthand. You can learn from what others have done. And so early on, I mean, I spoke with every single uh, person I could on what they had learned through their entrepreneurial journeys, what VC investors had learned from founders that they, you know, really respected and founders that maybe it didn't work out for. I think there's a lot to learn from failure in general. And again, it doesn't have to be your own failure. It can be, you know, learning from peers and others in the space. And the last thing I'd say is, you know, you are the average of the people you surround yourself with. I never hope to be the smartest person on my team. I want to bring together a team of people who are just incredibly inspiring and uh, driven. And I think as a founder, you should really find, you know, people and that is your own team. It's also the investors you surround yourself with. And it's also the partners you surround yourself with um, that, you know, make your vision even stronger and bigger and better. And I think um, that is something I've very actively thought about whenever I meet folks, uh, you know, as I think about growing the business. So, yeah. Who are your entrepreneurial heroes? Yeah. So um, I have a few folks that I uh, really admire. Um, so I would say, you know, for me, um, I think that there's a mix of folks who are very, uh, you know, controversial, but really fascinating to watch. So like Peter Thiel, for example, reading zero to one was, and watching him speak was one of the early days of thinking through how you innovate. Um, and that to me has been really fascinating to think about. Um, also in the ed tech space, you know, I, uh, you know, have gotten to know David Blake really well, who grew degreed, and he's constantly thinking of new ideas and new ways to innovate. And I think it's amazing to watch teams that have grown so uh, naturally under really amazing leadership. And that to me has been amazing. And then beyond that, there are also folks outside of just pure play entrepreneurship, but more on the investor side who have been really impactful. You know, at, at HBS, uh, Jeff Busgang was, you know, one of my uh, advisors, mentors, and, and professors who then later became an investor in Stride. And he's someone who has just um, been always accessible, always pushing, you know, me to think bigger and uh, but also to think really thoughtfully. And it's a good balance between focus and innovation. And I think um, I really admire, um, you know, people like him as well, who used to be an entrepreneur, a very successful entrepreneur, and now is really a, a teacher and a, a mentor and an investor to, you know, many folks similar to myself. 
Aside from the book Zero to One, do you have any other reading recommendations? Yeah, so um, so I would say, you know, authors in general that I uh, really admire include, you know, Adam Grant and, and Malcolm Gladwell. I would say those are probably two of my um, favorites. Uh, and I would say for Adam Grant, you know, both originals and give and take are two amazing books. I'm also biased because I went to Penn and he clearly was a um, pretty inspiring uh, professor there. And so, yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I guess as a final question, how can people follow you online? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, first people should definitely follow us on Facebook and Instagram. It's just, you know, at Stride Funding. Um, and then please check out the website. Um, you know, if you know anyone who needs uh, funding for school, it's just www.stridefunding.com and we have lots of information there. And lastly, people can also reach out to me directly if they have questions or ideas or want to talk through anything. But my email is just Tess, T-E-S-S, at stridefunding.com. So, Wonderful. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me, Miles. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.